21CL Radio. You're listening to the Run Your Life podcast with host Andy Vassar. Hi, everybody. Just before getting into a description of today's show, I want to wish all of you a happy new year. I really hope that 2019 brings each of you lots of happiness and success, and I want to take this opportunity to thank you for taking the time to listen to my Run Your Life podcast. It really is a passion project of mine, and I love sharing the journeys of people who strive for both personal and professional excellence in their life. I'm planning on releasing a number of podcasts in 2019, so I hope you come back and listen to as many as you can. In today's episode, I feel very lucky to have been able to have a conversation with former National Hockey League player Theo Fleury. You just heard an audio clip of one of Theo's most famous goals, which was scored in overtime in Game 6 of an intense playoff series against the Edmonton Oilers in 1991. This was just one of the 455 goals Theo scored in his amazing career. Theo, a Stanley Cup champion, as well as a gold medalist for the Canadian Olympic hockey team in 2002, played for four teams over the 15 years that he was in the NHL. Most of those years were spent with the Calgary Flames, but he also had stints with the Colorado Avalanche, the New York Rangers, and the Chicago Blackhawks. As one of the smallest players of his generation, he had to constantly prove himself in a league that was dominated by much bigger players. However, Theo's work ethic and endless dedication to putting in the long hours of hard work paid off as he scored over 1,000 points in his 15-year career, which still ranks him in 61st position in all-time points scored in the National Hockey League scoring history. Despite Theo's huge success as a hockey player, off the rink, his life once carried the markings of a troubled childhood, abuse, and coping with emotional pain through addictive and self-destructive behaviors. It was through this emotional pain and trauma that Theo was able to transform himself and find greater meaning and purpose in his life. 
His best-selling books, Playing with Fire and Conversations with a Rattlesnake, encourage open sharing and provide practical tools that people seeking help can personally use. These tools are also useful to those who want to lead a productive conversation with anybody experiencing trauma. In this episode with Theo, you will hear some of the struggles that he went through, what he learned about himself through those struggles, and the skills that he has been able to develop within himself in order to live a more authentic life. As well, we close off today's conversation with Theo talking about the powerful role that music has played in his life. As a singer and songwriter, Theo has used music to aid in his personal recovery and has produced a number of country songs. Music has been a form of therapy for Theo, and he hopes that he can impact other people through his music. With Theo's permission, I included his song, As the Story Goes, in this podcast, so you'll be able to hear his music at the end of the show. Theo has devoted himself to helping and leading others down a path of healing through speaking engagements and presentations, as well as personal coaching. It was an honor to have Theo Fleury on my podcast, and I want to thank him for his time. And as I told him, I have no doubt that he will continue to change the world one person at a time. With that, let's jump right into this episode with Theo Fleury. Uh, first of all, thanks for being on the show, Theo. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. Um, you're based in Calgary, right? Yep, I'm in Calgary, yep. Yeah. So uh, just to give some background, most of the listeners are physical education teachers, coaches, uh, athletic uh, directors, and uh, ed- international educators from around the world. Um, so can you just give the listeners a background into your professional ice hockey career? Uh, how many years you played for and for what teams just to kind of set the frame for the, for the podcast? Mm -hmm. Uh, let's see. I came into the NHL January 1st, 1989, uh, with the Calgary flames and I played 11 and a half years with the flames. And then was traded to Colorado and was in Colorado for basically five, six months. And then from there, I went to New York, played with the Rangers for three years, and then finished in 2003 with the Chicago Blackhawks. So yes, yeah, so I, played, I played 15 years with four teams, and uh, yeah. Yeah, you played over a thousand games, one thousand eighty-eight points, four hundred and fifty-five goals, six hundred and thirty-three assists, and you rank in um, the top eighty-seven uh, point scorers of all time history. So that's an amazing accomplishment. Yeah, not bad for a guy that wasn't supposed to play one game in the National Hockey League. So yeah, and that's a great <laughs> that's a great story how it started. So I guess you know when you think of yourself as a pro athlete. What were two or three assets that allowed you to thrive an underage or an undersized player? Uh, geez. I would say that first and foremost, I had uh, big time skill. Uh, I was very talented. Uh, secondly, I, I competed at the highest level 
every single second of every single shift that I played on the ice. And, geez, I don't know. I, I would say, and I, and I worked, you know, I worked really hard as a, you know, as an athlete and as, as a player, um, you know, when I was a kid, you know, I sort of subscribed to the Malcolm Gladwell theory of 10,000 hours. And, and, uh, you know, when I, when I was a kid, you know, by the time I left home at 15, you know, to go pursue a professional hockey career, uh, you know, I'd already put in those 10,000 hours of, you know, practice. And, and, uh, you know, I think it's really what set me apart from, you know, a lot of the guys that, you know, that I was competing against was, you know, they'd put in, you know, all that time. And, and, uh, and what was really cool was, you know, I play, uh, or we play a reactionary sport. And, uh, you know, if you have to think about where you need to be on the ice, you know, you're obviously going to be in big trouble because the puck moves faster you know, then you can think. And so what I did is I trained myself to react. And, and so when I, I stepped on the ice, I never had to think, you know, because I trained myself to, you know, react. And, and so, you know, those things were, you know, obviously huge in, in my development. And because I was a small player, I had to think quicker and faster than, you know, than the guys that I was playing against. Yeah. And I heard an interview where you talked about, uh, it was pure magic when you stepped on the ice and the element of creativity and you were a very creative player and creativity seems to be lost in the modern game, you know, but when you, when you think about, um, I guess, you know, for me, I, I did a Ted talk where I talked about, you know, the addiction in my family and, and how sport was my escape. And, and I heard you talk about something very similar, that hockey became your happy place and that you got the love, respect, and all the things that were missing in your life, you got through hockey. So can you talk about how, how hockey really provided you with an escape um, and a, give you a, a clear purpose and a focus um, in your life, considering the, you know, the background and kind of the, your childhood and what you went through in your childhood, how hockey was that escape and the 10,000 hours you spent working on your skills led to that escape. So can you talk a bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, both my parents, uh, experienced childhood trauma in, in their life, which I didn't know, uh, you know, at the time that I, was uh, living with them and, and in their home and that manifested itself into to addictions both my parents had had addiction issues my dad was an alcoholic and my mom was a prescription pill addict and so you know I grew up in a very chaotic um, violent uh, you know sort of chaotic home and you know, and because of that, I never wanted to be at home. And so, you know, early on in my life, uh, when I was five years old, I discovered hockey. And, 
and so every time I stepped in an arena, you know, I, like I said, I got, I got everything that I was missing at home, you know, love and respect and friends and teammates. And, um, you know, I was part of a team and, and, uh, you know, all the things that I was missing at home, um, you know, I got when I was at the rink, but you know, what I discovered, uh, writing my second book was that, you know, when I was in utero, when my mom was carrying me around, uh, my mom was severely depressed and she was taking value. And so, uh, you know, I was probably the calmest baby you've ever seen because I was bathing in GABA, you know, in utero, which, you know, obviously did some damage to, you know, my development where, uh, when you're in a situation like that, you, your dopamine and your serotonin receptors get shut off. And so when I came out into the real world and was no longer exposed to, you know, Value or GABA, uh, you know, I couldn't produce dopamine, I couldn't produce serotonin. And so, you know, when I discovered hockey, you know, which is pure dopamine and serotonin, you know, it was the only time in my life where my brain was completely, you know, regulated. And of course, that's why, you know, I. Uh, gravitated towards sports and and playing sports because you know it's when I was the most happiest at any point in my life but as soon as I left the you know the rink then I became this anxious um, confused you know person because you know I didn't know it at the time but but I but I was lacking um, you know, some really important brain chemistry, which I, you know, didn't know at the time that I couldn't produce. And so, you know, that's why I gravitated towards, um, you know, sports because it was, it was that happy place. And, and why was it the happy place? Well, because I could, you know, regulate my brain and produce enough dopamine and serotonin. And so, um, you know, as, as I got older, you know, I discovered this, you know, wonderful white powdered substance called mm-hmm. cocaine, which is dopamine, right? And so, yeah. you know, I wasn't trying to be an addict or whatever, you know, I was really, you know, from a uh, from very primitive aspect, um, you know, trying to regulate my own brain chemistry. Yeah. And can you hear me? And, 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 and that's why, and that's why I hate the word addiction. Yeah. You know, because addiction has so much shame attached to it uh, and stigma attached to it. And really, you know, what is addiction? Well, addiction is just emotional pain management. That's all it is. Yeah. You know, left, left behind from, you know, our childhood traumatic experiences is, is, you know, that's what it is. And, and, uh, you know, addiction saved my life. Yeah. It really did. You know, 
Yeah, and I I, and I heard, Theo, I heard you talk about Gabor Mate, and Gabor Mate, I've learned so much about my own family's addiction history and mental illness history um, by really reading Gabor Mate's work, and you, and I know that you, you follow his work, and his work has made a difference in your life, and Gabor Mate calls for a compassionate approach towards addiction that is not found in genes, but in early childhood environment. And that idea of um, dealing with trauma and emotional loss in childhood is the way to resolve addiction issues. And what I remember Gabor Mate saying is exactly what you just said, is that um, a lot of addicts, um, their lives are saved by being addicted, you know, and he gets... Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he, he talks about that. So can you, can you talk more about that idea of um, what you had to do within yourself to recover from the trauma and emotional loss and to turn the page and to, to move forward in positive and proactive ways? Mm -hmm. Well, there's, there's a lot of people that, you know, think that addiction is, you know, is a simple fix, right? You know, a lot of people just say, well, why don't you just stop? <laughs> well, you know, I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish it was that simple. I wish it was that easy. Right. Yeah. But because of my childhood traumatic experience, you know, I have to unpack all of that trauma and understand why we do what we do. Right. Yeah. And, you know, what I, what I realized with my parents was they were doing the best they could with what they had. Right. Yeah. Which then takes away, you know, blame and shame and, you know, all those things. It takes that away. <clears throat> and, and until we, until we fully understand why we, you know, do the things that we do. And even though I'm still sober, I still have, you know, a lot of addictive behaviors that I have to be very aware of because, you know, food is addiction, sex is addiction, you know, gambling is an addiction. You know, there's lots of other addictions other than drugs and alcohol that can fill the void for, you know, my emotional pain, you know, the that I'm constantly in, but, you know, that's why we have uh, therapy and spiritual practices and, you know, holistic approaches to emotional pain, uh, you know, that we have to discover on our own. We cannot be forced into recovery, you know, because uh, when we're forced into recovery, it's never going to work. Because it has to be a choice and it has to be a decision that we make individually that we are going to go on a path of, you know, healing and recovery. Yeah. But, in, you know, and a lot of times people don't get to, you know, get to that place. You know, yeah. it's, it's that saying, you can't help somebody that doesn't want help. Well, I was one of those people that, you know. I was offered tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of help, but I wasn't ready for the help. Right. And it wasn't yeah. until, you know, I surrendered and, you know, made that decision that my life 
actually changed. And that's that's what I wanted to ask you about, Theo. And, you know, one of the, the stories, I've only shared this once on a previous podcast with um, a guest I had on who had a severe gambling addiction. And, and I shared the story about my brother being addicted to uh, heroin. And he, you know, I was playing uh, football at the time, um, university football at the time. And my brother was an incredibly talented musician. And he just lost everything to his heroin addiction. And and I begged with him to get help. And he would plead back with me to help him in, in, in the way that he wanted. And at one point, he had given me his heroin. And he had it in needles. And he had less and less. There was about 10 needles. And he wanted me to give him a needle to help him, a needle each day to help him slowly wean himself off. And I did it. And I carried his heroin around with me because I didn't want to leave it in the house. And then I came home one day and he had um, practically overdosed and he was convulsing in the bathtub. And it was a moment where I did not know what to do. You know, I couldn't help him. And I just had to you know, it was the hardest moment of my life. And he ended up dying in 1999 of drug addiction. Um, what, do, what do you think you can say to people out there listening who have loved ones who are suffering from depression or addiction? What's the first thing that they might do? I know it's very complex, but what insight can you offer? Well, I think I already said it. You know, you can't help somebody that doesn't want help, yeah. you know. And the only thing you can do is take care of yourself, yeah. right? At the end of the day, um, which is, you know, maybe sounds a bit harsh, but, you know, those of us who grow up in addictive environments as children, you know, we are codependent and we are fixers, right? Yeah. And um, what addicts and alcoholics and, you know, people who are addicted to whatever, we're really good at collecting enablers, right? Yeah. Because the more enablers we have, the longer our behavior will last. But eventually, the addict makes the enabler sick. And then the enabler makes the choice that, you know what, I am going to remove myself from, you know, that situation. And then when we run out of enablers, you know, we hit the proverbial rock bottom and we yeah. have to, and we're, we're left with the choice. Do I live or do I die? Some of us die and some of us live. That's just the nature of addiction, unfortunately. Yeah. You know, some people get it, other people don't get it, right? You yeah. know, and <clears throat> and my first AA sponsor that I had, you know, said that to me. He says some of us gotta die so some of us can live. Yeah, and you, you spoke know? you spoke very passionately. One of such a moving talk I'm gonna include in the show show notes where you know you talked about being in the desert and the gun incident. And, and you, you almost ended your life and something within yourself said that you weren't a quitter. And that was the moment, to quote you, you said that you surrendered to life. 
And what did you mean? You know, I, I think I understand what you what you meant, but what do you mean by can you give people some background into that incident, but also what you mean by surrendering to life in that moment? Mm-hmm. Well, I was completely exhausted from living in emotional pain and suffering for the majority of my life. And I tried absolutely everything on the planet to get rid of it. And, you know, I, uh, I'd been up for seven or eight days without any sleep at all. And I said, you know what, this sucks. I I can't live like this anymore. And so, you know, uh, I said to myself, I don't want to be here anymore. And so I drove down to the local pawn shop and, you know, bought a gun and some bullets and came home and, you know, sat down with the gun and the bullets and a whole bunch of cocaine and a bottle of vodka and, you know, was reflecting, you know, on my life, you know, all the amazing things that happened, all the horrible things that happened were like a, you know, a movie playing in my head. Finally, I gathered up enough courage. I loaded the gun and put the gun in my mouth and I remember it rattling against my teeth and I remember what it tasted like and still this movie, you know, playing in my head and, you know, right at the moment of truth when it was time to pull the trigger and end my life, you know, this random thought coming into my head that said, you know, you've never quit anything in your life. Why are you quitting now? And, you know, that was the turning point, you know, and I didn't want to die. You know, I wanted to live. And I knew what I was showing the world wasn't who I was, you know? Yeah. Um, It was a reflection of, of my trauma. You know, I was living in my trauma. I was playing the victim. I was using every excuse in the book except for the one where you need to get really honest with yourself and, you know, decide make a choice you know which is surrender mm-hmm. right yeah and and from surrender comes you know uh the opportunity to fully look at yourself you know and to get rid of all of the excuses that we use to continue the behavior of addiction. Yeah. And can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Sorry. I I thought you cut out there. And when you, I guess it's it's so powerful because as you said, you made the choice to do that. And I just want to say the world is a much better place having you in it. And, and the work that you're doing now is what the world needs because in 2030, and I think that you probably already know this in 2030, um, suicide is going to be the leading cause of death and addiction and depression and mental illness is spiking at an ever increasing rate. And I think that the more people that speak about these things, especially men going through this because men tend to keep it in mind, um, you know, like the work that you're doing is, is profoundly important. And I guess 
you know, I, I kind of want to know because a lot of professional athletes struggle. I mean, I just played university football and and stopped, you know, play, playing five years and then ending my my career. You know, you, your self-identity is tied up in being an athlete. So how did your sense of purpose, when you chose to surrender to life, how did your sense of purpose change? Obviously, it, it changed, but can you just talk about kind of the current work you're doing the, the purpose of your work and the vision that you have to continue to make a difference in the world one person at a time? Mm-hmm. Well, it's sort of evolved, you know. <clears throat> um, you know, the first thing I had to do was, you know, was get rid of the excuses. And so, you know, September 18th of 2005, um, you know, I got sober. And I surrendered and turned my will and life over to, you know, the universe, I call it. You know, I don't talk about God because, you know, I don't understand the white bearded guy in the sky. Okay. Yeah. But I, but I get the concept of relationship. Okay. Because my trauma happened in relationship. Okay. In relationship with my parents, in relationship with the coach, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Our our traumatic experience happened in relationship, okay? Which tends to cause us to lose the relationship we have with self, Mm -hmm. okay? And, And so... And so I, I sat down and wrote this autobiography about my life. Playing with and fire. Playing with fire. Yeah. And, you know, the intention was not to talk about my trauma. The intention was to talk about, you know, my hockey career. But early on in the process of writing this book, the person that I was writing the book with, you know, uh, first I trusted her. Yeah. And then she made me feel safe. And so three years later, we finished this book. And, you know, I didn't leave anything out. Mm -hmm. I told the whole entire story. So four days before I'm going to Toronto to launch this book, you know, I sit back and I go, holy shit, like, what the hell have I done here? You know, and I was very scared and afraid and anxious Mm -hmm. because I didn't know how everybody else was going to react to what was in the book. And then I knew that I was going to Toronto to do a whole bunch of media. And I knew that the only thing that the media would be interested in would be to re-victimize me at every opportunity. Mm -hmm. So what I did, because I'm a, you know, fairly smart and bright guy is I spent four days on my computer researching everything I could find on the subject of child sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. Cause I wanted to get a story of hope and healing and recovery out to the masses. <clears throat> so sure enough, I show up in Toronto. I do like 300 interviews in four or five days. And sure enough, the only thing they're interested in, is the gory details of my sexual abuse. 
Yeah. But like a good politician, you never have to answer the reporter's questions directly. So I made sure that I had five main points that I wanted to get across in every single interview. And so I accomplished that. Mm-hmm. And I got this story of hope and healing and recovery out to the masses. So then next thing on the thing on the docket was the first book signing. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't have a whole lot of expectations for the book. I didn't think anybody was going to read this book. I thought I'd show up, uh, uh, at the book signing and sign 10 books and go to the next city and sign 10 books and so forth and so on. So I show up at the biggest Indigo chapter store in all of Canada, downtown Toronto. And I walk through the front doors and there's 400 people standing in line with my book. And I'm like, what are all these people doing here? This is really weird and strange. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I'm, not Wayne Gretzky, you know, I had a decent hockey career and, and, uh, but I'm not, I'm not that guy. So I start signing books out of the corner of my eye, spot this guy in line and he's got my book clutched against his chest and his face is buried in the floor and he's walking really slow. And I'm like, Hmm, you know, I wonder what's up with this guy. And it wasn't so much that it was his appearance where he was wearing dirty old sweatpants and his t-shirt was ripped and his hair was greasy. And I was like, holy shit, that guy's homeless and he's got my book. Yeah. So I follow him all the way in the line. He gets to the front of the line, puts the book on the table, looks me in the eye and says, me too. And that's when my life changed. That's when, you know, I really found purpose because I, you know, I said to myself, I'm like, holy cow, like by me finding my voice and putting a voice to my pain and suffering, I can now help other people, you know, get to that same place. <clears throat> and then what happened was I got completely run over by people everywhere I went. People were, coming up to me at book signings and speaking engagements and saying, Hey, you know, I read your book or I saw an interview or I watched your documentary and me too, you know? Yeah. And, and it was, it was incredible to, you know, by find my own voice, um, the impact it had on everybody else was incredible. And, you know, I don't know how many people have a, you know, a 10 year speaking career where they're constantly being asked to speak all over the world, but I haven't stopped since, since 2009 and that's 10 years ago, you yeah. know, and, and, and it's, and it's incredible, you know, how much I've learned about trauma, mental health, and, and addictions. Was that because the... When I, because when I started, I knew nothing. Right. I knew only of my own experience. Yeah. So in 2009, when you released that book, and, and, and that story is really powerful with that person stepping up to you and saying that, and again, going back to this idea that when you make yourself vulnerable, 
when people make themselves vulnerable and share their authentic self, they then give permission to others to do the same. And in doing the same, then the people begin their recovery process. But you also wrote a book in 2014 called Conversations with the Rattlesnake. What did you learn in between? Because you put your whole story out there in 2009. So what in 2014, in the release of that book, what did you learn about yourself or learn about your journey that was the purpose of that book in 2014? <clears throat> well, you know, after, after I sort of done the initial book tour, um, you know, there was many, many people that would come up to me and say, you know, what do I do now? Now that I've found my voice, now that I've, you know, talked about my trauma, you know, essentially, how do I heal now? Right? Yeah. Because the first step in the process is find your voice. Then the second step in the process is, you know, how do I, how do I live with this trauma? And instead of seeking out unhealthy behaviors, how do I seek out, you know, healthy avenues in which I can live without, you know, having to rely on my addictions in order for me to be, you know, sort of functioning. Right. So, you know, I showed up at this uh, conference in Winnipeg and uh, the conference was about resiliency. And they were asking me to speak about resiliency. But <clears throat> there was a lady who was speaking in the afternoon who I'd never met. And, you know, most times, you know, when I show up at a conference, I just basically sit in my room until it's my turn to, you know, to speak. But for some reason, I felt compelled to go and listen to this lady speak. Mm-hmm. So I put on my baseball cap, I put on this disguise and I snuck into the back of the room and I started to listen to this lady speak and was completely blown away at the information that we, she was providing, you know, to the audience. And then she did something. She put two videos on the board, one of a healthy mom and baby uh, reaction and then one of an unhealthy mom and baby reaction. And it triggered me instantly. Yeah. Because I'd spent the majority of my recovery and my therapy on my sexual abuse and forgot about my family of origin trauma. Mm -hmm. And so as soon as she was done speaking, I quickly just ran up to her and I said, uh, I said, hey, you. I said, you just changed my life. Yeah. And I said, I be working with me for the rest of yours i said to her and uh and we were able to have dinner after i spoke and i said to her i said i had such an amazing experience writing the first book that people are asking me to write a second book i said would you be interested in writing a book with me and she said i would love to write a book with you and and so i invited her to come to my house for the weekend in Calgary and she agreed 
And basically we sat around my kitchen table for 72 hours and we talked trauma, mental health and addiction. But from a neuroscience perspective, which I had never got yet. And at the end of the 72 hours, I realized there wasn't one thing I could have changed about my life to make it any different, Mm -hmm. which then took away all the shame, all the guilt, and most of my anger. And so we started writing this book. And what I discovered writing the book is about what trauma teaches us. Okay. Yeah. And trauma teaches us four things that become the core beliefs of who we are. So the first thing that trauma teaches us is abandonment and neglect. Second thing, I'm not good enough. Third thing, I'm not lovable. And then the fourth thing, which is our Oxycontin users, our fentanyl users, and our people that kill themselves, is do I even exist in the world? And to me, that was like the biggest aha moment of my life because that's what I need to rewire. Is that thinking? Okay. Yeah. And how do I do that? Well, for the first time in my life, I need to have a relationship with self. Mm -hmm. Because I need to be okay when I'm alone. Right? Yeah. And so how do I how do I rewire those four things? Well, Self-love, self-forgiveness. I need to learn empathy, compassion, and then ultimately get to forgiveness. Because forgiveness is freedom. For yourself, first and foremost. Yes, it's only for self. It's only for self. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I... I need to have a relationship with myself for the very first time in my life because all I ever did was run away. Yeah. It was either fight or flight. You know, I never sat in uncomfortable feelings before. Every time I was in that uncomfortable place, what happened? I'd I'd go to the bar or I'd call my drug dealer or, you know, get in some fucked up relationship with some other fucked up person. You know what I mean? It was just yeah. a never ending cycle of addiction. So the, the ability to, to sit with yourself and you've, I, I assume that you've learned that idea of non-judgment, you know, and, and forgiving yourself is, is included in that is, is not judging ourselves for, for anything, but the role of physical, you know, I know exercise and physical activity is important. Is that also, is that also important to you now? Like, do you, do you still try to exercise and, and be physically active? And it, does that also help you uh, in moving forward? Well, I'm going to be honest with you. 
is I, I suffer very much from I'm not good enough. Right. Okay. And so the biggest obstacle for me is physical exercise. Yeah. Because every time I start to do it, I feel good. And then I self-sabotage. Yeah. Because I'm, I, because I've been in pain so long, physical and emotional pain for so long mm-hmm. that I don't like that feeling because it's, because it's not, it's not familiar. Right. You know? And so that's right now, that's the biggest thing that I'm working on right now is, is, you know, the physical because I've had more physical trauma than emotional trauma. Right. Right. And so, you know, that's, that's my biggest obstacle right now is, is, um, feeling better physically. Yeah. Emotionally, spiritually. Yeah. I'm there. Yeah. You know, but you know, body, mind, and spirit. Right. You know, and, and, you know, and because I've neglected my physical being because I was working on my emotional and spiritual, you know, I, I forgot about my physical and now my physical being is screaming at me to, you know, and so, and so, yeah, it's, it's been, it's been a difficult um, thing, but you know, what's interesting is we wrote, a chapter in conversation with a rattlesnake called sitting in your shit. It's called. Yeah. And, and you know, for the last two years, that's basically what I've been doing is sitting in my shit and feeling, you know, feeling feelings for the very first time in my life, you know, Without, without numbing them, without numbing them. Yeah. Right. And, and so, you know, that's where I'm at in my life. And, and, uh, but, you know, I am, I am not frustrated. I am not, you know, I know that it's part of the process and it's part of, you know, the next transition for me to become even a more, you know, spiritual being. Yeah. Have you heard of the work of uh, Dr. Martin Seligman? No. So I'm going to share, I'll share the link with Don, but um, he's, uh, a, he's the founder of Positive Psychology. And what he talks about, he's from uh, University of Pennsylvania, and all of his work is strength-based. He's world-renowned. And what he, he talks about is that psychology traditionally for decades always talks about how people are screwed up and all this shit they've gone through. But what he did is like enough of that. And it reminds me of what you said about enough of awareness on the healing. And what Dr. Martin Seligman focuses on is the positive. And and the research that he has um, put out in the world is astounding um, when we can focus on what's actually working in our life instead of uh, focusing on what's not working. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And what he talks about he has something called uh, scanning for daily good. And it's such a simple concept. It's just basically at the end of each day, forcing yourself to look at 
three good things that happened in your life that day, even if you're having the shittiest day, mm-hmm. it, it could be somebody held the door open for me at the, at the shopping mall. And then mm-hmm. you write it down in a journal and then in parentheses, you say what it represents. So the person holding the door open, that would represent kindness. You force yourself to, 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 to identify three things um, that you're grateful for each day. And he did this activity with severely addicted, clinically depressed patients. And after seven days of doing this, he, their depression stabilized. So then he challenged them to do it for 30 days and then make it a part of their life on an ongoing basis. So his work is all strength-based on on what's working in our life and focus on that. So if you had to look at your life, like what are two, you know, you had an amazing career, you, you changed the lives of many people by finding new purpose, but what are two or three things that you're presently genuinely and authentically grateful for in your life? Oh boy, that's a good question. Um, I'm I'm grateful for the relationships I have today, you know, that are healthy and, you know, they're not all one way, you know, like there's back and forth. Yeah. Um, Right. I'm grateful to be alive. Really. Yeah. At the end of the day, I'm grateful to be alive because um, you know, there was a there was a time when you know I didn't think that that was possible, you know? Yeah. That um that I was gonna overdose or you know fall back into some old behavioral patterns or you know whatever it is, but uh, you know, and I and I'm grateful that that I get to to do this work, you know, because I, when I left the game in 2003, I had no idea what the rest of my life was going to look like. And, and and I found it in other people, you know? Yeah. And, and really like making a difference. And I love, I love your perspective now that, you know, that, that you have found a much clearer purpose in the work that you're doing. And, and I know you're, you're pressed for time. And I just, I, the one thing I wanted to touch upon was your music and, you know, my, my family, my brothers, both the brothers I lost were musicians. And so music was always a part of my life, you know, and it's such a special part of my life. And I, I listened to some of your music and, and your, your song as the story goes is Mm -hmm. such a beautiful song, you know, um, and with your permission, I want to um, include it in, in the podcast so that people can listen to it and find your music. But yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. can you just talk about just to, to close the show, <clears throat> Can you just talk about the the role of music therapy? And I know that that music can be therapy, and you know you can see the connection that you have with the other musicians in that video. But just speak about um, the role that music plays in your life. Well, you know, even though my childhood was, you know, pretty crazy and chaotic, you know, my fondest memories as a child were sitting beside my grandfather, listening to him play the fiddle. And my dad was an entertainer. My uncle was an entertainer. And so, you know, probably the only time 
that we bonded was when the guitars and fiddles came out, you know, and, you know, it seemed like when that happened that all of my family conflicts sort of, you know, were pushed to the side Yeah, and everybody got together and, you know, people were smiling and dancing and singing and, you know, it was, it was a special time. It was a special place. And so, you know, <clears throat> I always sang, you know, when I was a kid, I always sang. Yeah. And, you know, when I retired <clears throat> from hockey, um, you know, I had a, uh, a friend in the music business and, you know, our dads used to play music together before we were even born. And, you know, he became this, you know, producer, writer, all this stuff. And, you know, so I called him up and I said, Hey, I want to uh, stroke something off my bucket list. Yeah. I said, would you write a song with me? And he said, yeah, I would love to. And so I went to Winnipeg and, and, you know, we sat down and he said to me, first thing he said to me, he says, what do you want this song to be about? And I said, uh, I said, you know how you, when you play that country music record backwards, you know, you get your car back, get your dog back, get your girl back, you know, you get everything back. Yeah. You know, I said, that's what I want this song to be about. And that's, you know, how we wrote As the Story Goes, the very first song that I ever wrote. All was all about, you know, getting everything back. And when we were finished the song and he sent it back to me, you know, finished and mastered and everything, I looked at it and I, or I listened to it and I was like, Jeez, this is like really good stuff. And and so I phoned him and I said, you know, um, do you think this is good? He's like, I, I think it's great. And so I said, do you want to continue writing more stuff? And he said, yeah, absolutely. And so I kept going back to Winnipeg and we'd write two or three songs uh, every time we were together. And then I, I had an old drinking buddy in Calgary. And the whole time we were doing, uh, you know, doing drugs and drinking together. I didn't even know he was a musician. Yeah. So I got sober first and then a couple of years later he got sober and and then we started, you know, writing music together, writing songs together too and what was interesting was the very first time we got together, he came to my house and we sat down in my basement and we wrote the title track to the album in like 45 minutes. Oh, wow. And so, you know, and what happened was it, it, it was just this really cathartic thing, you know, and another avenue to help people, you know, heal, right? Because I'd, I'd done the book, I'd done the documentary, and, you know, and the music is a reflection of, you know, sort of all the shit that I went through you know, in my life. And it's, it's basically, you know, the book in music. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, it's so cool that you, you found that and, 
And when you say that that idea of, you know, the only good times in your family were when you were together playing music, that's the way it was with my family. At Christmas time, we'd get together. I played acoustic guitar. My brothers played guitar and drums. And and it was such a happy time. And we still have videos of that. And, you know, it, music is really, really healing. And it does bring people together, you know. So I, I am looking forward to including, um, as, as the story goes, uh, in the podcast uh, to close it off. But um, I want to really thank you for your time today, Theo. And thank you for... Um, you know, your, your honesty and just for you doing the work that you do. And, and I wish you the best of luck. And where can people find the work you're doing on social media? Uh, our website is theoflurry.life. Okay. Um, I'm on Instagram at theoflurry14, um, on Twitter at theoflurry14, and then uh, on Facebook, it's uh, theoflurry. So. Okay. Um, that's great, man. Thanks. I'm in, I'm in London right now and I got kind of messed up on time zones and stuff, but I'm glad, (laughs) I'm glad that we could uh, have this conversation. And, um, I really think people will benefit from, from hearing your story. So thanks, uh, for, for your time, Theo. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. I'm just going to close off the show, Theo. And then I just want to say goodbye to you. Everybody. Thanks for listening to my podcast with uh, Theo Flurry. And I hope you come back to listen to future episodes. Now I've got a heart You gotta let me down slowly Now at least take the memories Am I asking too much? Like an old country song
Thanks for listening to the Run Your Life podcast by Andy Bassett. To check out show notes, get some more information about Andy as well as his guests, head to our website, 21clradio.com.